This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson coming to you from Gallagher Land, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. As Parliament returned this week, both parties took a step forward in an attempt to right a past wrong. For the first time, federal politicians endorsed a code of conduct, not only for themselves, but for their staff. Kate Jenkins, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, whose landmark Setting the Standards report set this in motion, called it an historic moment. Yeah, it really was historic for the entire history of our parliament. There has never been codes of conduct for all parliamentarians and staffers. Passed with bipartisan support, there's hope that these standards represent progress and that they'll make Parliament House a safer place to work. Even if old habits die hard. Sanctimony is obvious from many in this debate because the most important diversity of all, the diversity of opinion, will otherwise simply not exist. Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Live News Editor Patrick Keneally about changing the culture of Parliament. It's Friday, the 10th of February. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Patrick. Morning, Gabs. So Parliament has returned for 2023 this week and both chambers had a lot to get through. But on Wednesday, a new code of conduct was passed. Lenore, what was that all about? So basically, it is that huge political Me Too movement that happened in the last term of Parliament is basically rolling through the system, the ramifications of it. So you can remember when he was confronted with that crisis, Scott Morrison commissioned a report from Kate Jenkins that was delivered, the Set the Standard report. Then there was a cross-parliamentary committee to try and implement the report. It recommended a code of conduct and has this week set out what it thinks the code of conduct should be. And it is probably things that most people would take for granted in a workplace, things like you have to act respectfully, professionally and with integrity. You have to encourage and value diverse perspectives. Bullying, harassment, sexual harassment or assault or discrimination in any form will not be tolerated, that kind of thing. But given the whole history, this is actually a quite a leap forward, a very significant moment for the parliament and it is in the process of being adopted by both houses. And Patrick, Peter Dutton was in the news for his immediate response once the code was endorsed. What did he have to say? It was slightly defensive, really, and there was a bit of score settling happening as well. So he got up to say, we've got 10 women in the shadow cabinet, the same number as the government has in its cabinet, and 17 women altogether in the outer an assistant shadow ministry. And then he went on to say that one of the big factors from discouraging women from pursuing political office is the treatment that they receive online. Obviously such behaviour is not limited to Liberal women, but women of centre-right views are subjected to some of the most disgusting vitriol online and social media dominated by the extreme and vociferous left. When women of a centre-right persuasion see the harassment... People like former MP Nicole Flint and Senator Jacinda Price have been... And look, there's no doubt that women politicians from all sides of politics cop some horrific abuse online, but I don't think it's really isolated to those of the centre-right persuasion. It's well and good to promote greater diversity in our parliament, and so we should. But if women, particularly of a centre-right political persuasion, are deterred from pursuing a political career, then we will damage our democracy. And the sanctimony is obvious from many in this debate. Because the most important diversity of all, 
the diversity of opinion will otherwise simply not exist. I just think that was such a depressing response from Peter Dutton because, you know, we've had ample evidence, as Pat says, that this happens to politicians of all colour and particularly female politicians from all sides of parliament. There's been plenty of examples equally highlighted of terrible behaviour across the board in parliament. There was a report earlier this year of 500 instances where MPs' safety was actually at stake. So yes, he's right that that's a disincentive to people entering parliament, but the kind of argument like our trolling's worse than your trolling is just so diminishing of the whole issue and sort of so boringly predictable. Like, yes, I'm sure Jacinda Price and Nicole Flynn have been subject to terrible bullying and terrible online behaviour, but so have many, many, many politicians across the board. I just thought it was a very diminishing and poor response. And I failed to see in how any way instituting a code of conduct that demands that all members of parliament and their staff act with integrity undermines any of that or interferes with it in any way. And there are coalition MPs on this task force that came up with a code of conduct, like Susan Lee, his deputy. Mm. It it also seems to ignore Julia Banks saying that she was bullied from inside her own party. Yeah, well, I mean, she did come out with some pretty scathing remarks and a couple of Liberal women did at the time of the leadership change saying that they were being bullied from inside the party and there were allegations inside Labor that the late Kimberly Kitchen was bullied by Labor senators. So this cuts all different ways and a code of conduct applies equally. And we aren't the only ones unimpressed. What did Dutton's fellow MPs have to say about it, Patrick? Yeah, the Labor MP Sally Situ, who um, comes from Sydney's inner west, she's responded to Peter Dutton's speech through social media, just talking about the abuse that she's received on social media as, you know, a progressive female parliamentarian. And the abuse that she's been receiving is not just gendered abuse, but racial abuse as well. But her point was set the standard report and the response and the code of conduct is to ask everyone to do better, that there's a role for all men and women across all parties to help lift the tone of debate in the country and make it more respectful. And the best place to start with that is in Parliament. This all happened on the anniversary of Scott Morrison apologising to political staff for enduring difficult experiences while working for political parties. How did we get to this moment? Sure. Okay. So, like, going back to the Jenkins report, it came after the terrible allegations by several women of sexual harassment and sexual assault in Parliament. And this report, the Kate Jenkins report, sort of took anonymous and on-the-record statements from all sorts of people in Parliament House and many, many women came forward. It found that a third of the respondents had been sexually harassed, 37% reported bullying, 51% had experienced at least one incident of bullying, sexual harassment or actual or attempted sexual assault, and 1% had experienced some form of actual or attempted sexual assault. So she just called it. She said that it was a culture where this sort of thing was happening and everyone was turning a blind eye. People knew or thought they knew who the perpetrators of this kind of behaviour were, but no one was speaking up. There was no mechanisms for people to speak up. There was no culture of speaking up or calling it out. It was just an accepted way of doing business in that workplace. And she just really laid it on the line. This is not acceptable. I think some of those numbers that we saw were just incredible, like a third of women saying they had been sexually harassed. And this is a pretty big workforce. Like there's 4,000 people in the building Mm. on sitting days and, you know, there's quite a high turnover. So the amount of people that are affected by this Mm. is really quite 
Even Incredible. if you take into account it's a third of mm. respondents, so mm. that might be a smaller group, but still, it's a lot. You're right, it's and a it's lot of people. Of, yeah, yeah, of the larger group, and also I think this is not just isolated to workplaces within Parliament, but it spreads across parts of the public service. There's also state parliaments where this kind of behaviour happens as well mm. around Australia. It's mm. not just isolated. But I think there are factors in the parliamentary workplace which make it particularly risky, and I think her report went to that as well. There are kind of singular factors about the experience within federal parliament that I think mm. some of those things like people being isolated from their families, having incredibly long sitting days, and the role of alcohol within mm. the parliamentary offices, I think is really key to it as well. And I think the only reason we've gotten this far is because there was that moment where people just, you know, younger women, particularly in parliament, said it is enough, this can't keep on happening. And it forced it forced the government and the opposition of the day to rise above politics and go, yep, okay, we have to address this in a cross-party, you know, non-political manner. You know, there had been multiple suggestions in the years before that to have some sort of independent complaints process, some independent code of conduct, which the parties had rejected out of hand with the sort of thought that, oh, you know, you can hold us to account at the ballot box. Well, I'm sorry, that's just not good enough. I think we all just have to keep an eye on this to make sure that the level of interest and the spotlight is on it so that it's carried through to the point where it is kind of entrenched to the point that there is going to be a change in culture. Yeah, I was amazed how many kind of aborted attempts there were along mm. the way to introduce code of conduct. Mm. Apparently the first one was in 1975 mm. to introduce code of conduct. And, you know, Cathy McGowan attempted mm -hmm. um, their attempts under the Gillard government, but, you know, all of them came to naught. Given all these attempts at reform have failed, it does seem that this is a really hard thing to change. I think it's been changing by increments over the years. So I, before I became editor, I worked in Parliament for 30 years in the press gallery. And when I started, it was really normal to be at work till one or two o'clock in the morning because Cabinet sat that late. The Parliament often sat that late. There was a bar on the premises. Mm. So people are hanging around waiting for cabinet to finish, waiting for a story to happen, waiting for their turn to speak, and were in the bar and drinking. There were big parties in corridors where people got, you know, really quite intoxicated. So I think the culture has changed since then. I think Paul Keating brought in some changes. He made sitting hours a bit shorter and a bit more reasonable. But it still is a, an environment that requires very unreasonable long hours. It's a very combative type of environment by the nature of the work. So there's a lot of adrenaline, a lot of energy, and then people have a drink at the end of the day. The drinking now more often happens off the premises, but that doesn't really change things. So I think it has changed by increments, but I think it has a long way, a long way left to go. And we have seen work hours come into the news in the last couple of weeks with Monique Ryan's office. Patrick, can you tell us what's happened yes, there? So Sally Rugg, who um, led some of the campaigns in favour of same-sex marriage and is a you know um, feminist and a social campaigner, was appointed as Monique Ryan, uh, independent MP's chief of staff. But recently she took Monique Ryan and the Commonwealth to court, accusing them of forcing her to work unreasonable hours. Now, that's playing out in the courts, and I probably shouldn't comment on it specifically too much, but it has raised the issue of what are reasonable hours for people to be working. And Sean Kelly wrote a very interesting piece on this for nine newspapers about his experience working in the Gillard government as a staffer. And just the 
incredible hours that people worked. So as a media advisor, you would often get up at sort of 4 a.m. to listen to the early radio news bulletins, have a, the first call shortly after that, another call at 6.15, another call at 6.30, and then work essentially a 13 or 14 hour day after that. And not only is that damaging for people, but what does it mean for the quality of advice that ministers and MPs are getting from their staff if routinely we're working 13 or 14 hours? In medicine, that used to be the case for junior doctors and there was always this attitude within hospitals, well, we did it when we were junior doctors, there's no harm in doing it. But that has slowly also been changing because people are saying, is a doctor going to make good decision after working a 16-hour shift? Mm. No, of course they're not going to. And we have the same issue for the quality of advice that staff are giving their MPs. The other part, and he went into this, is that it self-selects a certain type Mm. of person to work in those offices if you have to work those kind of incredible hours. It's absolutely incompatible with any sort of family life. Uh, You're going to be away for a lot of the year. When you are away, you're going to be spending more than half of your day and most of your waking hours working for your MP or minister. And it turbocharges, it's all sort of self-reinforcing because if you have then a group of predominantly younger, very motivated people away from home doing these incredible hours and they're needing to kind of let off steam, they're more likely to go out drinking There's and there's less likely to be, you know, older, wiser heads around kind of tempering conversational behaviour. So it kind of is like a spiral that kind of reinforces itself. I thought it was interesting that Jenkins wouldn't comment on the rug case in particular, but she did say that she thought it was progress, that people are exercising Mm. their rights because they are recognising that they do have those rights. So can we see this as a positive step forward in a way? It's positive that people feel that they can complain or stand up for their rights. Yeah, I agree with her that that's positive. I think it's going to take a lot of work to change that culture. Mm. Because remember, the politicians are also away from their families. So, you know, they think, well, I may as well work, you know, the boss, the politician thinks I may as well work late because I'm here, I can't go home. If I get it done now, you know, maybe I'll have some more time when I go home. But then the staff don't go home if the boss is still there. Like, it's going to take a very conscious set of changes by MPs and ministers to change this. And I think there's also an element of this reform yet to come, which will be important to that. And that is the enforcement mechanism. I don't think it's a positive when these things end up in court because Mm. Mm. it's incredibly expensive. It's not a good way to resolve these issues. And I think they are going to mediation. They are going to mediation now, Mm. but this code of conduct hopefully will mean that people can resolve these issues well before you get to that point. So that's the big outstanding thing. This is a huge step forward, but the thing that the Jenkins report recommended and which needs to happen, and I think Kate Jenkins has said she wants it to happen in the next year, is that there's an independent parliamentary standards commission where people can take complaints. Because you can remember this all began way back with the allegations that Brittany Higgins and other women raised. And at that time, when this was all sort of boiling about in Parliament, one of the big things people realised was there is nowhere for people employed in Parliament House to complain where their complaints will be assessed independently. There's nobody to complain to. Yeah, I was really shocked by that. So this, you know, because of the nature of the workplace. So this Independent Parliamentary Standards Commission is supposed to be a place where that can happen, where people can take a complaint, it will be assessed fairly and independently, it won't be politicised, it won't be played for politics. And I think that is a big thing, that's a big ask, because, just refer to what I just said, won't (laughs) be played for politics, but... 
that's essential for this to work. That's like the key piece of this. So I do think Anthony Albanese is trying to push these reforms through. I think that cross-party group is taking its work seriously. I think there is a genuine attempt. But, you know, I guess maybe I'm a little bit cynical. I I just want to make sure politics doesn't infect it and mess it up because we've come this far. Next, cartoons and chatbots. Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here. At Guardian Australia, we want to make sure you're getting the news that matters in 2023. Our morning mail and afternoon update newsletters are short and capture the most important headlines of the day. If that sounds good, you can subscribe for free right now by visiting the Guardian homepage, searching Guardian Australia newsletters, or just downloading our app and you'll get daily notifications. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head. Lenore, what is it for you this week? Well, the truthful answer is I can't get the situation in Turkey and Syria out of my head and the horrific news and the horrific images after the earthquakes Mm. there, but I really don't feel able to talk about that because it really is so distressing. So instead, I'm going to talk about Fiona Katowskis joining The Guardian as a second cartoonist. She's going to provide three cartoons a week. So we'll have Fiona and First Dog on the Moon because we can't get enough of smart, funny cartoons. That is so exciting. Patrick, what can't you get out of your head? Well, for me this week, it's been all about chat. GPT, really. So I don't know if you heard, but um, Labor MP Julian Hill has used what's probably the first uh, AI-ridden speech to be delivered in Parliament. Um, And nobody could tell. Nobody could tell, (laughs) So, uh, you know, it got us thinking about, you know, other uses for chat GPT for writing backbencher speeches on industry policy or or childcare policy and and whether anyone would actually notice. I did think that when we were, I was listening to some of the talks about Medicare the other day after National Cabinet, whether one of them was written by chat GPT, could make no sense of it. The report on Medicare, it could have been written by. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I did put it in, you know, um, please write a speech in the style of a speech to Parliament about industry policy. And I swear to God, I've heard it about 50 times in the actual (laughs) Parliament. Well, maybe this is saving politicians time and will help their hours. <laughs> no, I'm not sure that's a conclusion. I don't need staff anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I think we just solved right, no. the problem. <laughs> uh, well, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thanks, Kat. Thanks. If you want to know more about this, Catherine Murphy has written about it during the week. Go to theguardian.com to read more. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Camilla Hannon. The executive producer is me, Gabrielle Jackson and our theme music was composed by Joe Koning. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. Have a great weekend and we'll see you on Monday.